Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So... Turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and this is another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. And just a reminder, if you want to see our faces, you can catch this episode on video as well as on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so please go there and check it out. And joining me today is my partner in all things 80s, the Simon to my Nick, the John to my Roger, John Hughes. Do, 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 do. There's the extended version I want. Do, 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 do. I am excited. I love Rio. Who doesn't love Rio? And if you didn't love Rio before, if you didn't know much about Rio, if you weren't convinced already that it is one of the most perfect and iconic albums of the 1980s, our special guest today and her book will convince you. She is an award-winning journalist, editor, and critic whose profiles, interviews, and criticism have appeared in Rolling Stone, NPR Music, The Guardian, Salon, Billboard, AV Club, Stereogum, and much more. She wrote the liner notes for the 2016 deluxe edition of REM's Out of Time and contributed an essay to the 2020 Game Theory compilation Across the Barrier of Sound Postscript. And most importantly for fans of this podcast, her new book on, of course, I think you figured out, Duran Duran's Rio for the 33rd and a third book series was just released. We had her on before. Not surprisingly, we had to go into extra innings. We weren't even past side A. We hadn't even gotten into the serious stuff. So we had to have Annie Zaleski back. It means so much to us, like a pretty view. Part two begins now. Hello. How are you? Thank you for having me again. Happy Thanks to- for coming back. I, I always love talking about Duran Duran, and it seems like no matter no matter what interview I schedule, it ends up going like three hours because I just talk about Duran Duran for hours. Let's well, you ready? <laughs> Let's go. I'm sure we've all seen Arena multiple times. The film? The film. The mm-hmm. live portion, Yeah, I've live seen it. Portion, live mm-hmm. portions. Watch okay. Andy during the live portions. A lot of stuff that you think is Nick Twidland knobs is Andy through effects pedals yeah. as well. Maybe okay. a digital. But there's, there's a lot of soundscapey things that I think Andy brought that get lost because we're so used to Andy being muscular uh, riffs and everything. But he's also doing some some weirdy Nicky things over here to roady things. Well, let's talk about Nick for a second, though, because actually when we're talking about things that we learned from the book that we thought we should that we know we should have known. Um, I've always argued that Nick is underrated because he is, you know, I mean, the guy who kind of hangs in the back. In the and barely moves like it looks like a robot alive or whatever and he's a little more stoic and quiet i've always said he was the architect of the aesthetic he's like the most person who represents what you think duran duran looks like or is 
But I learned from this book how much of an architect he was at the start. He was like, what, 19 years old? And he was the guy that was putting in the extra hours. Like, I really think this book puts into perspective how instrumental he is in Duran Duran. I would agree with that. And I think, you know, it really shows off. He's always been the one that loves being in the studio, I think, more than anyone else in the band. And so in this era, especially, he was soaking up everything. I mean, they're at Air Studios. So they're at this, you know, legendary studios in in London. And he was really like, okay, I want to make sure the sound is right. Like I, you know, he, yeah, as you were referencing, you know, they basically stayed, he stayed behind to make sure that the mix of Rio was right you know, with some, you know, whoever the studio people, whoever decided to hang back. And he was like, I don't care. Like I will miss filming the videos. I need to get this right. And, you know, because he, you know, really came and him and John started the band and he, there was such ownership about it. And when you do listen to this record too, and you listen to all the, his synth parts too, it is really like, they're all really interesting. And he really is sort of the one that kind of the, the aesthetic and kind of set it. Um, but yeah, he really, you know, and the way that he talks about here's how the music came together and here's in the, the and, and, but he didn't like reading um, manuals. That's the funny thing is he was just like, yeah, I don't like manuals. I'm just going to kind of like play around and see what happens. But wow. he just loved all the gear and he was very much like, and I think this is very true in the band now. Any new technologies, he's like, yeah, bring it on. Like, let's try this. This is really cool. And so that really, he kind of took to that as well. And so I think that also is reflected in there. Annie, do you think Colin Thurston gets enough credit? Mm. Not at all. No. And I mean, Colin, so I mean, Colin produced and mixed this record. And sadly, he passed away. Was that 2006 or 2009? Yeah, yeah 2006. He worked with Duran Duran on their first two records. And, mm. you know, when you look at other things he worked on in his catalog, he worked with the Human League. He obviously did some stuff with Bowie. He did some stuff with Kajagugu um, and Talk Talk as well. Um he was really good at kind of bringing out the best in the musicians. You know, some producers, they have their own style. When you hear something that's produced by them, you're like, oh, that's definitely a so-and-so production. Colin Thurston was just really good at making sure everybody sounded that like was at the best of their abilities and sounded the best. And, you know, he, you know, Duran Duran were very much, they knew what they wanted. And so when he was there, he made sure like, Let's keep this going. Let's make sure that everyone sounds good. Let's make sure this is mixed good. But no, he's he's like, he was the one that I'm so sad that I wish, you know, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have interviewed him. And I looked up to see what kind of interviews that were out there with him. There aren't that many either, oh. which is really sad. And he's, he is such, he's like one of those figures that if you're a, a music nerd and a kind of a liner notes geek, you're like, it's Colin Thurston. Because his records sound great. Everything he worked on sounded awesome. Forever after Rio, whenever a new Duran Duran album would be announced, I like please call it, please call him Thurston, please call him Thurston. And no, they do you know? Were. Do you know why after Rio they never did again when Rio was such a game changer for them? I mean, I it might have been that he was busy um, working with other people, which is very possible, or you know that they wanted to try someone new. I don't know, honestly, and I'm not sure. I would probably have to start digging. I'm sure in some interview somewhere it was mentioned, but you figure, you know, back then, like people weren't asking Duran Duran about their music. You know, there was yeah. really, let's talk about everything else but your music. You know, the yeah. amount of Rio profiles that had very little about their record was like, well, all right, you know, well, speaking. I don't know if they deserve credit for it or, uh, or you know, was a missed opportunity. But like in the the late '90s, the lost wilderness years, Medazzaland. Usually, bands like this get reunite with their original producer. You know, like Human League and Martin Rushnet. You know, mm. uh, U2 and Steve Lillywhite. It, yeah. Why didn't Duran do it when they had the opportunity? It just it's always confounded me. 
But one thing I want to ask you, Annie, is uh, regarding that is when Mark Ronson, who, you know, we could say is pretty instrumental in this whole critical tide that Duran Duran are now experiencing that ever since All You Need Is Now, when they did that album together, he was, you know, the hottest producer in the game, still is, and was taking every opportunity he had to talk mm-hmm. about Duran Duran. He even opened for them, you know, in concert. But I remember him saying something, I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of when he got in the studio with them to make All You Need Is Now, he wanted to make the what he thought should have been the follow-up to Rio. He had problems, you know, with Seven the Ragged Tiger, thought it was an imperfect record, thought it was not a, um, you know, I don't think he dissed the record, just saying like this, that should not have been the follow-up to Rio. I would actually say that So Red the Rose by Arcadia is, the, in my opinion, the continuation of That's the Rio aesthetic. But what do you feel about like how when they got with someone who was such a, a you know an unabashed fanboy like Mark Ronson? Do you feel that album sort of continued or recaptured that Rio sound that maybe what we would have wanted if they'd reunited with Colin Thurston? I mean, I think in a sense that they they recaptured kind of the the real poppy elements of the Rio sound. Like I think the songs they're very compact. They get to the point. Like Girl Panic is one of my favorite like later era Duran Duran songs. You know, the title track is great. So just the idea of let's get in and let's make these short songs like, you know, like you might in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think too just the way, uh, you know, I think in in terms of not overthinking too. I think it's a pretty it's simple. It's a simpler record. They're not going to you know Seven of the Ragged Tiger. I think people are like, "My god, there's so much going on." You know, everyone they they, they threw everything and but the kitchen sink on that record yeah so i think in a sense that you know in in terms of because rio was very simple you know they had some overdubs but like you know it wasn't you know they had their 24 tracks but they weren't necessarily you know overdoing it they put little elements in there and so i think you see a lot of that with all you need is now as well but you know i think it was it was roger that told me that you know what they're in the studio they still play very similar to how they did in the rio era that they, you know, it's still them when they're, when he and John are playing together, it's still that rhythm section that's been playing together for 40 plus years. Can we talk about John for a moment? I can't believe we've taken this. I mean, when we're talking about the appreciation for Andy's guitar playing for Nick's synthesizer uh, and production work. I mean, I don't, I still don't think John Taylor is, he definitely gets respect as a bassist now, but I still yeah. don't think it's enough. When you were talking about like checking out things on YouTube, there are like isolated bass things on YouTube. The Rio one is one of them, the title track where it's just like, holy cow, this guy should be held in the same esteem with, you know, Flea or, you know, people like that. 100%. I think every time that he's, there's a, like a best basis list and he's not on it. I like it so mad. Rolling Stone didn't have I it. And I'm like, where was Rob Sheffield? Did he I call exactly. in sick that day? <laughs> exactly. Cause you know, I, he would have nominated John Taylor. Exa- I, I would think that he would have clout to make sure he's on that list. Like if I were him, that's what I would have done. Be like, I'm not writing anything unless John Taylor's on this list. Go on strike. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, it, it's, that uh, it's you almost can't put into words like how like those bass lines on that record because you're right when you talk about Rio in particular he did his bass tutorial and he was breaking down well this part is this from this and this part is this you're like oh my god you were like 21 years old who was thinking about this you know he were they were so complex but they were so thoughtful and you know and when you hear it live especially like new religion I think especially is one of them you're just like 
you know, and they were, they're so nimble too. And they're so, there's so much velocity and he'd even used the fretless bass a little bit, you know? And I think part of it, it was that he didn't, he, you know, he did that a little bit, but he wasn't doing kind of all the, you know, the, the weird eighties bass stuff that kind of really dated the record. He was very much like, I'm going to be a little bit old school. And cause they wanted to be a rhythm section. They wanted to be like chic. They wanted to be like Japan and David Bowie. And so they were very, very old school in that sense. But I, I can't, I can't say enough good things about his bass playing because it's just so good. And it's just, it's so influential. I mean, I think you see, he is one of those people that everyone's like, I want to play bass like him. I want to try to figure out these bass lines. And they're very difficult bass lines too. Deceptively, they, they sound like, oh, sure, this would be pretty easy. And then you try to play him. No way. And that that's really a testament to just how, you know, but he was so young too. Crazy. He really, they practiced so much and he became so good so fast. This isn't uh, a criticism. He's Bernard Edwards' bass player. Uh, that is he, absolutely not a criticism. Right. It, you know, there's a little bit of pop and slap there. There's okay. there's a, a different melody happening from the main melody. Uh, you hear things like, uh, you know, Last Chance on the Stairway, that that where the whole beat changes. Uh, dun, dun. <laughs> or no, Lulling Your Nightmare is what I'm thinking of. Lulling Your Nightmare. Oh, yeah, that song. And, and you're like, whoa, all of a sudden this became a very bass-heavy song. It's almost like a bass solo at that point. Uh, and he is really, it really shines on something that I can't believe we've gotten this far into it. We have not had this debate yet. The mixes, the different mixes, oh. the original mix versus the David <laughs> Kirschbaum US mixes where John's really uh, almost front and center on those remixes for the US. What are your guys' preferences? Someone has asked me this and I'm like, I, I almost like I can't choose me. I know. Okay, well, see, I can't. I, mean, I always want John, more John, in my no. ear. So I'll go with whatever mix had the more that. It's it's so funny hearing the Kirschenbaum mixes now because I think I the version of Rio I think I had growing up didn't necessarily have the I, I don't even I had like because I, as people will know if you're a fan there's a million different pressings of Rio and you, it's kind of a crapshoot what you're going to actually get you don't hmm. quite, quite know you know I'm used to the Columbia original house what. Oh, yeah, I have, I have the Columbia House version. I also have a third pressing that's not the, yeah, exactly. We could be there for hours. But why Why is that? Is that, was, I mean, I'm sorry to sound naive. Was that common back then? Because that sounds unusual that there'd be so many different pressings. Remember how long it took for this album to catch fire. So mm. I was doing everything that they could to make this album a success here because they saw what was happening overseas. And they're like, if we can get a 10th of that, in the, exactly. the world's most populous uh, commercial country, we're going to have some money here. And, you know, and Capital was known for doing that too. Um, Thomas Dolby, who released yeah. the Golden Age of Wireless, like basically the same week as Rio, there's a million pressings of that record too, because She Bought Me With Science became a hit and they were trying to make, you know, the, the record take off. And so that was, it wasn't necessarily uncommon, but yeah, Duran Duran, especially there was a second pressing that had a different mix of Hungry Like the Wolf. And then there was a third pressing that the whole first side was remixed and, you know, trying to figure out and some of them were on Harvest and then Capital took over. So some of them are on Capital and it's like, yeah, it's, it's like people will argue. I found a, there's a message board that has like a 15 year long argument <laughs> about pressings. And no, and they're still, they have still haven't come to any conclusions. That's crazy. I yeah. think we can all agree though. Well, maybe not. Uh, but most people I talk to agree. The U.S. mix of Hold Back the Rain just completely destroys the original. Yes. yes. The difference. The, uh, the U.S. mix is the longer one. Yes. 
There you go, because we need more, as much Hold Back the Rain as we can get. I love that song. It's. I'm surprised that wasn't a single, but to your point, Annie, so pretty much they could have thrown a dartboard at the track listing. I actually ran up against Seven of the Ragged Tiger. You know, they exactly knew out it had taken so long to catch fire here that it was like all right we're done with this record well from what i recall back then in the 80s it was kind of like just a given that no album other than maybe um thriller had three singles it didn't matter if there were three or four more potential singles it wasn't like alanis morissette and jagged little pill where it's like let's put out seven singles it was like three singles and then on to the next album it didn't matter i don't know maybe um either of you have some insight into why that was sort of the business model then it, it was it was a, an album a year there was a cycle yep. and when you got the end of that cycle you had that new album queued up you wanted to release that first single and give it a couple months to get that new album out there People forget Save a Prayer was not a hit in the U.S. until 1984 when it was 85, released. 85. The power that's, station that's was crazy. like doing stuff. And it's like, oh, Duran Duran's new single. And everyone's like, where have you been for the last three years? Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, also, we talked a little bit about Carnival. You mentioned that. Yeah. The B-sides from this record, the outtakes, the B-sides, the rarities. I mean, some of the B-sides on this record, uh, again, they could have been singles. They could have been A-sides as well. Let's talk a little bit about Carnival, because if I'm remembering the chronology in your book, Annie, like Carnival kind of like was a hit first, right? On the chart. Carnival. So, you know, Rio was on the charts, not really doing much, just kind of hanging out, kind of languishing. So in September of 82, they released Carnival. And as as we were discussing, there were multiple versions of Carnival around the world. Um, but the um, U.S. one had Hungry Like the Wolf and Girls on Film, the night versions, which are different from David Kirschenbaum mixes. The night versions are by Colin Thurston. And on the second half was Hold Back the Rain in My Own Way. And they were just called the Carnival remixes. And I believe those were by David Kirschenbaum. Um, and to complicate matters further, a lot of times some of the some of the pressings were mislabeled. So you, you pretty much had no idea what you had. But yeah, this basically was sort of, so these were all dance mixes, you know, because Duran Duran, there were some radio stations that were doing dance-oriented music at the time. And Duran Duran had a lot of success on the dance charts. And so basically there were these extended mixes that different radio stations could play. And that became a success. Like in the fall of 82, that really started picking up on the charts. And it was, it was also cheaper. It was, you know, it was four songs. It was an EP. And that finally helped kind of, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf get unstuck and, you know, and Rio get a little bit unstuck. And so by the, by around Thanksgiving of 82, Hungry Like the Wolf had started picking up at rock radio again. It, it charted a little bit. Like there was there was a brief moment where it charted back in the summer. But then finally, 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 it really started to pick up. And then in 83, it crossed over to the pop charts. But it was a journey. It was an epic journey. What were the B-sides from this river that were actually like B-sides? Like I seem to recall that their cover of Come Up and See Me was Come Up and See Me Make Me Smile, the cover of Steve Harley, that was not a B-side. John, you're shaking your head. There, there were no studio B-sides for this record. Which, nope, is, there was like which is weird because there were a whole bunch of good ones for the first album. Like of Angel was, was for my own way. way, which was before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, technically, sure, you want to call it a B-side for Rio. I guess, yeah, that one sneaks in. But uh, Make Me Smile, Come Up and See Me was the B-side from um, uh, Snake. Snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what was the reason for that? Because like, I mean, the B-sides that were from the first album, like Canada and Late Bar and I mean, like, you know, those were amazing B-sides. So like Faster Than Light, that was all first album, wasn't it? 
Lack I, of material? I think it was probably lack of material and also because they had so many remixes. You know, mm. I think it like, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf, like all of the, they had a live version of Careless Memories, you know, <laughs> and so, and like they, look and they, up, look out, look out. yeah, exactly. You know, but then, you know, in America, it was like, well, you know, for, you know, B-sides, which remix do you want? We have like 10 of them you could choose from. And so that's kind of, you know, I think how it led. There was, there was Rio part two, yeah. which is, which is, you know, it's fine. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's, whatever, it's fine. Um, you know, it's kind of forgettable though. You know, if you mention it to people, they're like, what is that? You know, if you're a fan, you remember it, but you know, Actually, but yeah, until they picked up Seven and the Ragged Tiger, they were like, well, maybe we need to have some awesome B-sides again. Like Secret October, obviously, October. is one of the best. But I actually want to pick up on something that Sam Hollander said when he was on the show before, because I want to know your take on it since you mm -hmm. sort of mentioned Rio part two. Sam Hollander, obviously, for those people listening who don't know, you know, very successful, hugely successful songwriter. He does a lot of stuff with uh, Panic at the Disco. And he was saying the one thing he didn't like about the song Rio was the do, 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 do at the end should have gone on longer. He's like, that's such a hook. And they just threw it away. They tacked it on for like 10 seconds at the end of the song. Do, 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 and then it fades out. And he's like, that should have been 30 seconds of the song. That should have been a refrain. That should have been like a pre-chorus. You know, hmm. how do you, and I kind of, I kind of agree with him. It's amazing that they were like so prolific that something so hooky could have been almost an afterthought as the yacht is sailing away, you know, in the video. It is amazing that they didn't actually do a remixed version of that song that did also tack it on because that would be, that would definitely be obvious. I'm wondering too, if that's from a modern lens, like now that sounds really, you know, kind of a modern, like you would think of a, you know, a Spotify popular single, you know, they might move that around because mm. like there's a weird version of Rio that K-Rock played that had some like, like, um, uh, like, TV show like audio. John, are you familiar with this? No. It, there's like I found it on an air check. It was like this like very famous um like like song. I'll, I'll dig it up after we're talking here about like it was some like TV show was talking about like drugs or something like that. And there's a version of Rio the DJ played that had that overlaid. And so obviously it was an in-studio mix. It wasn't anything official. Okay. Hmm. bizarre though but yeah so it's like people kind of did their own thing with well, how they thought the bridge should kind of go and so but yeah i think that that ending is really like totally and because that gave simon the chance to really like you know do his like his uh his musical theater i i you know, <laughs> listen to rio now you're like you can totally hear why you know simon's theatrical side coming out i do also want to ask you or bring up a point that i have only actually kind of relatively recent recently realized so you were saying you know this was a poppy record when you were talking about all you need is now it kind of like referenced that sound and they obviously were a quote-unquote boy band and they were uh, huge mtv stars and they were on top 40 radio but and of course everyone who's a casual fan remembers hungry like the wolf and rio which were super poppy and of course hungry uh hold, up, hold back the rain was too but like when you start to really deep dive into this record this record is not this is a dark record like the chauffeur New Religion, Lonely in Your Nightmare. These are not like typical, like happy, shiny pop songs by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think, I mean, there's definitely like a lot of that post-punk and I don't even want to use the word goth necessarily, but like there's a darkness to it that I don't think people, maybe it's just the image, it's the videos, it's the album cover artwork itself. It was also colorful and tropical, but like this is actually kind of a gloomy record in parts. 
I would agree with that. And I think that because exactly what you said, because people saw the videos and they were like, oh, they're a boy band and they look so happy that there is kind of that moody artsy edge, you know, when you listen to side two, especially, and it's very kind of like, you know, had, had they decided we're going to push that side of the record and, you know, they would have been mm. seen kind of like the cure kind of like, you know, when the Smiths came, you know, just before the Smiths came out, is this like kind of gloomier artsier band? You know, I was talking to someone today who said um, their girlfriend saw the video for the chauffeur for the first time and her mind was blown. She was like, I had no idea that Duran Duran could be like this. Mm -hmm. They had, had no idea that they had that artsy side. And I think that really in, in later years, I think they've really kind of, kind of stressed like, hey, we do have this side and people are really recognizing that, but it is dark. And, you know, in this record especially, and I think that's another reason why A, it endures and B, people really gravitated toward it because it isn't just this like frothy, happy record. You know, there's a lot of introspection and there's a lot of, you know, there's some darkness, there's some, you know, melancholy to it. And there, that definitely is there. It's funny how um, all you need is now is seems to be really tied with Rio in, in a lot of the conversations. And I think there is a song, The Man Who Owned a Leopard, which is the sequel to The Chauffeur. That stole knows, a leopard. He didn't. Well, he owned it by, by devious means. Yes. He stole uh, a leopard. Oh, a leopard. Exactly. <laughs> it's the sequel to, this, to The Chauffeur that we didn't know we needed. And it yeah. really kind of calls back to that sound. And it just shows you it's my favorite song on Rio, The Chauffeur. Just Mine too. That song. Uh, wow. I, you, you hear it and you're like, like your friend that never heard it before. They're kind of like blown away that this is, it could be a Japan track. Mark Ronson said it's one of the greatest songs of all time. Not one of the greatest Duran Duran songs of all time. Not one of the greatest 80s songs of all time. He flat out said it's one of the greatest songs of all time. He ain't wrong. No, I mean, nothing, no other song sounds like that. I mean, that when you listen to it, you know, you're right. It sounds like it could be a Japan song, but just everything about it from, I mean, what, A, what 80s band was having an ocarina on their songs? Do we, do we, can we think of anything? I can't think of one, you know, so, yeah, right. And so, you know, but so there's that little element. There's like the little samples. There's, you know, the way everything is kind of layered together. It just sounds like it's from another planet. It sounds completely otherworldly. And I mean, I, I often think of like, what if Duran Duran had decided we're going to lean into this sound going forward? I was like, about to ask that. Yeah. Yes, the path you have huh? You have Arcadia. My theory <laughs> it holds up. Well, what I wanted to ask you, just not to so much leaning into that sound, but also, you know, we've talked about it here. We've talked about it with Sam. We've talked about it in general. Like, they leaned into a certain marketing thing, which obviously worked well for them. They did not, unlike some of their peers, they did not shy away from being in the teen magazines. They played up the fact that they were good-looking guys who were into fashion. They made videos that highlighted that. You know, they didn't disavow that. And do you ever wonder, or in the interviews you did with the band or anyone else in their orbit, you know, if they hadn't leaned into that, if they hadn't put, you know, made those videos, if they hadn't um, granted the interviews to Tiger Beat or, or made photos that were clearly designed to be pinups and posters, like, do you think, obviously we have this critical um, esteem for them now, but do you think they would have, like, how do you think they're an alternate universe of Duran Duran would have been? That's a really good question. I should have asked people that and I didn't. And that's because that's a really interesting thought. Um, I mean, what's weird too is that at it, it, first in America, the teen magazines didn't want to cover them. The publicists had to like convince them to try to cover them, even though they were huge in America or in the UK. 
You know, I mean, had they kept on the kind of the new romantic when you, it's, it's so funny when you actually look at their progression from like 1981, the very start to like 1983 and how they're, you can see the outfits and the eras like change just from a visual aspect. You could tell they were trying things out. You know, I, I think Duran Duran probably would have been a smaller band and probably would have been kind of like one of those really cool 80s alternative bands had they not really leaned into the boy band element. You know, I think they, because they always had that, hey, we like punk, hey, we like post-punk. You know, I mean, Simon got to see Joy Division and The Cure, like he said on Twitter last year. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, had they leaned into that and, you know, they could have been this cool cult band. They could have made Arcadia and they could have, you know, made a bunch of Arcadia records, which has been okay by me. Um, but I think they would have been kind of a cult band had they not kind of leaned into it. You know, there was so much, the stars aligned so much around the Rio era. Like it really could have gone one of two ways. I think we have a test case. I think we have one, um, which is related. And that's Kaja Gugu. Mm. Uh, well, they had a massive top five hit though, right yeah. out the gate here. Boy band, you know, pinups, they, hated it they th saw themselves as a art jazzy new wave combo mm -hmm. centered around nick begg's bass playing really they fired them all that was one of the greatest Lamal. mistakes in the history of pop you know and you see what happens yeah. so i think we do have a little petri dish over here where we could see <laughs> if they had rejected that this reminds me let's get into just a little bit more of alternate universe talk have you ever wondered what duran duran would have been like if Stephen duffy had stayed their singer even Tintin Duffy from Now the Lilac Time and later things. Kiss Me would have been a hit. Yeah. Would have been a <laughs> oh my God, it was a hit if you lived in LA and listened to yeah. K-Rock at the time, but point to, but I mean that when, like for instance, with I have a friend who loves Stephen Duffy's work, loves the Lilac Time, just loves that whole thing. Not the biggest fan Duran Duran. He's always very amused yeah. by the fact that Stephen Duffy was in the, was in Duran Duran in the, in the early days before Simon joined. And we've talked about how different that would have, I mean, obviously lyrically it would have been different because we wouldn't have Simon's lyrics, but like Simon's voice is so, we haven't even really talked about his vocals, like how he has this, I mean, I think sometimes he gets a bad rap for his vocals, but it's like every song is written at the top of his range. And he, you know, it's like, so he's, it's like, I mean, even getting beyond like Rio, when you look at songs like, uh, or getting beyond the Rio album, when you think of songs like A View to a Kill or Wild Boys, it's like really high up there. It would have been such a different band with Stephen Duffy. I think they would have been a lot more kind of swoony romantic. I think they probably would have they probably would have leaned into like sounding like Roxy music a lot more because like yeah, I mean, Kiss Me is a great song, and he but he has he does have such an interesting voice, like a little bit more soulful maybe, but like he you know in the Lilac Time too, he's a lot lusher you know because he the that music that he made was so kind of lush and and like like prefab sprout ish almost and i always liken it to that and duran duran would have been like i don't even know where guitars would have fit into that it would <laughs> they would have been like jangly and chiming guitars potentially because yeah it would have just it would have just been weird i mean that's what's so interesting is simon has such a unique voice but like i don't he fits perfectly in duran duran but i don't know if he'd fit anywhere else the yeah. Robert Smith's kind of the same way even though he oh. does do stuff guest stuff it's like you hear him you know it's him sorry john go ahead Back to Stephen uh, Duffy, I think if you take away the Trevor Horn uh, overproduction on it, a song like Icing on the Cake is kind of Duran Duranish. Add a John Taylor bass line to that song, and you've got Duran at their Roxiest, or Stephen Duffy at his mm -hmm. Roxy music-ish. So um, Roxiest, is that, is that a good adjective? It is now. I like it. it. It's not Duran Duran without Simon. I think we've, we've 
discovered what the chemistry truly is. And, you know, I love every single thing about that guy. I love the hiccups. I love the yelps. I love the voice crack at Live Aid. The man can do no wrong. He's drama. It's all about the drama with him. Nothing subtle about him. And actually, I would say his voice, you know, yeah, like I said, sometimes he gets a bad rap for singing, not being technically perfect. But I think in recent years, his voice is the best it's ever been. I know he had some um, health scare. He had to have surgery on his voice. He had, um, you know, he had his basically his vocal cords repaired. And I don't know if he did any kind of, you know, voice therapy or training with a, you know, um, a vocal coach or whatever. But he, I feel like he rebuilt his voice. And when you hear him do these old songs, um, the Rio songs or whatever in concert, they sound better than they ever have live vocally. I would completely agree. Yeah. I mean, I've seen them, you know, many times over the years on different tours and, you know, and that's, that was one of my biggest takeaways. I saw them last in 2019 was like, geez, Simon sounded amazing. They did the chauffeur at the show I saw. So he puts on the hat and he comes out, but it sounded so good. You know, it just, I I think you're right. And I think everybody has really, you know, they've always been great musicians, but I think just because they've been playing together so long, they still sound so good live. Everyone sounds like there's a little bit of extra every, every time I see them. Extra. Speaking of live and and uh, things that are happening uh, as things are opening up, and I know it's not Rio, but since I've got two fellow Durannies here, I have to ask, what do you think about Graham Coxon being in Duran Duran? I am for it. It's Blur-Ran, Blur-Ran, yes. or you could call it Dur, D-U-R. I prefer Blur-Ran, Blur-Ran. I mean, that's definitely a combination I didn't see coming, but, you know, to put two, you know, iconic bands together from two different eras I love. It works. I mean, you know, at, at the time we we're recording this, they've recently debuted that lineup, you know, on the Billboard Music Awards. And I don't know how many times Graham is going to perform with them, but he seemed like a like a full time member. And he's like apparently all over the album Future Pass. It's coming out. I thought it was just going to be one or two tracks, but he's like all over it. My my blur fandom made a lot more sense when I found out that like he that he was playing with Duran Duran. I was like, oh, like some, you know, some like synapses started connecting because I love them. Girls and Boys is a Rio track. I know, I know. It kind of is. Girl, someone needs to do a remix, like a mashup, I mean, of like Girls and Boys and Girls on Film. Actually, that's what we have with this album. (laughs) That's actually a good way to sort of bring it into the the future past, as you will. You know, you mentioned The Killers, Annie, and I mentioned Interpol, and we, you know, just mentioned Blur. But like when you talk about the influence that Rio in particular has on the modern crop of bands. Are there any other bands that you, that maybe you interviewed or talked to, or just anecdotally know really owe a debt to this record? I mean, I think the most interesting thing is that when I really started digging into it, I'm like, Oh, you know, cause I looked for people to interview, like who, who's influenced by Rio. I found so many people. It, I mean, from going back to, you know, the members of, you know, Jonathan Davis of Corn is a huge fan. Found members of Linkin Park. I mean, obviously, if you're a 90s kid, you know, Courtney Love loves them and, you know, Billy Corgan and, you know, modern parlance. I, I think what's so interesting is that with Rio, it's they you can't no one has ever duplicated that. People try. I think the Killers probably came closest, but there's no real band that's ever captured what Duran Duran on Rio sounded like. You know, there's kind of echoes of it a little bit. Um, you know, I saw there's a couple things here and there, but no one has ever come close, which is, and I think even like Roger Taylor said, he's like, you know, no one sounds like us. And it's true. Whatever they did on this record, that magical alchemy, like no one, no one can really kind of duplicate it. Absolutely. That's a funny point because you, you think of other bands of that era 
and you can name a bunch of clones like yep. Depeche Mode, okay, Camouflage, yeah. uh, The Cure. You can name a ton, but you can't really name a Duran Duran clony band. No, is, yeah. Kaja Gugu maybe, and only really because of the fact that they were very closely associated yeah. with Duran Duran due to Nick Rhodes' production. But yeah, I will say I do want to just share one anecdote of a comment I had. I got to tell David Cook this, which made me very happy. So David Cook won American Idol in yeah. season seven. He is the only guy to have ever covered Duran Duran on American Idol. He did Hungry Like the Wolf in like the year you were born week because he was born in 82. Uh, so, I'm going I'm to go kill myself. Now. No, he did it. And so, you know, it's the only time on The Voice they've covered Ordinary World a lot, but they never go back to Rio. And that could be some licensing issue with those songs not being cleared, or it could just be that a lot of people don't want to do these songs because they can't make them their own. But David Cook did Hungry Like the Wolf, and he's the only guy to have done that. So uh, shortly after that, it was when All You Need Is Now came out, because um, David Cook won in 2008. I was interviewing Duran Duran. I was interviewing John and Roger, and somehow that came up. You know, but American Idol somehow came up. And I mentioned this fact to Roger, and Roger goes, and I do believe he won American Idol, didn't he? I'm like, yep. <laughs> It's all related. It's because of it's because of you guys. But I thought it was amusing that he knew that. But he was like, hmm, and he won. And I got to tell David Cook that, and he 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 was very honored. He's like, he didn't realize that he was the only guy who'd ever covered Duran Duran Idol. But he was very honored that the guys in Duran Duran were aware of that, and you know, and gave him a little bit of like cheeky props. So you know, I, I, the I tentacles say, go out there. You know, I want to say I didn't want to kill myself because he covered Duran Duran. I wanted to kill myself because it was songs the year you were, were born week. <laughs> don't watch american idol now where it's like songs the year you were born and they're covering songs from like 2003 you'll oh, feel no. even worse you'll feel oh. even worse but actually you know uh david did a nice job of it but yeah there aren't too many that would actually be a good thing to bring up before we end is aside from the influence not too many people actually cover these songs there was a tribute album to duran duran but like a lot of people don't cover duran duran songs do you think it's because this magic, this alchemy you're talking about, especially on Rio, is just like, it's just too hard to cover a Duran Duran song. I know I, Courtney Love did Hungry Like the Wolf, actually. Yes. Deftones did the chauffeur. Okay. Yes. They actually did an amazing job of it, I will say. No, I would agree with that. No, I, I think it is degree of difficulty, you know? And I think it's interesting because you see that I've seen some kids like on ukulele cover Rio. And so they kind of strip it down to like the very, like the bones of it, but like the full band fleshed out version, you know, I mean, there's a reason why I think that people like try metal versions of like Hungry Like the Wolf, because you can kind of make it your own because yeah, it's, you can't replicate the sound. They like, people try and it just does not work. I think it is degree of difficulty and just, you know, I, I think people also like putting their own spin on it just because these the songs are so much fun to play. You can kind of play around with it, too. You know, when people do cover them, they try to do something a little bit different with it. So I think that's 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 a testament too. that's the challenge is you will want to do something different. But then yeah. you realize you can't improve out, on perfection. <laughs> you can't leave out the baseline of Rio. Yeah. You can't change it. You can't get you can't do rio without the sex solo and so basically karaoke at a point yeah so yeah so basically the point is that you can't improve in palm perfection and this was a perfect album as you say in the book annie the book that i'm holding in my hot little hand the 33 and the third rio book what would you like i mean obviously we took such a deep dive into this this long conversation today but for people reading the book particularly people who maybe weren't super educated about this album or Duran Duran before, what would you want their main takeaway to be? I, you know, one of my biggest 
hopes, I guess, is that if people are sort of like, I know Duran Duran, you know, a couple songs, I want people to really respect the band as musicians and respect the band's songwriting and really kind of, you know, throw out their expectations. Like if they thought Duran Duran was one thing or they only were like, oh, they're, you know, they're pretty, you know, there's nothing else to them. You know, I hope that they kind of see, you know, that they're wonderful musicians and that there's a lot to the band and that they really are kind of deserve to be seen as one of the great British bands of no matter what era, you know, kind of the, you know, we talked about in the book that they, you know, they came out of the era where Bowie and Pink Floyd and, you know, the Clash and all the Sex Pistols were all these amazing, amazing British bands. And, you know, Duran Duran are definitely from that tradition. And I hope people see that a little bit more too. Awesome. Well, thank you for doing the Lord's work. Thank you for your service. Thank you for seeing this to fruition over a 14 year journey to get this book made. The book is the 33 and a third book on Rio available now on Amazon and physical bookstores, which are open again. Thank you so much, Andy Zaleski. I am Lindsay Parker. I've been joined today by the Nick to my John, John Hughes. <laughs> and we want to thank you for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And we will catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Totally 80s.